Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 10 through 17. Hear God's word for us. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why don't we give the worship team just a round of applause? I think they're doing a great job, right? Man, that was so good. That was so great. Well, hey, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in, all right? Dear God, thanks for your word. Um, (laughs) If we're genuinely listening to what was just read, that was heavy words. And yet there's life. Because whenever you speak, even when you challenge, you come that new life might spark forth. That's who you are, as someone who's always pursuing our good. And so, God, may you give us ears to hear. May you give us eyes to see the beauties of who you are and the life you long for us, the life you've designed us to live here on this earth. We love you. Thanks for loving us first and loving us always. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen, amen. Well, I want to begin by telling you, just sharing with you something you're going to already know. Five signs that you know you're in love. And look, they're all up there, all of them. Oh, here we go. So number five, you're intensely curious about the person, right? Well, you know when you're in love with someone when you can't just, you can't help but ask questions. You want to find out more about that person to continue to discover more and more and more. Number four, you forget your other priorities, all right? Um, Especially if you remember like in high school or in college or if you're in that space, it's like, man, I forgot about my homework. I forgot about that club that I was in. I forgot about these other responses because you're just so consumed with that other person. Number three, you feel invincible, right? After you've spent some time with them, you're like, I can conquer the world, right? There's just something about when you're in love with someone, you get to spend time with them and how that shapes your confidence. Number two, you're worried when you're away. Right? You're thinking to yourself, how are they doing? How are we doing? How are we doing about how they're doing? Like all these things that are going through your mind because you're not there and you don't get to gaze into each other's eyes and see the self-affirmation that I smile, you smile, we're good, you know? And then number one, you feel safe when together. That's a key marker that you know you're, you fall in love with someone is that when you're with them, you feel okay and they feel okay. This is safety that comes. Do you remember the, the first time you fell in love? Like you really fell in love, like that feeling in your gut? Um, at least that's where it was for me. Some of you are like, no, it was in my left arm. No, I don't know. <laughs> but for me, you know, it's just like that gut, that heartwarming feeling. It's just something that comes over you. <clears throat> and some of you are thinking, uh, wait a second, Gabe. I just heard the scripture reading. I'm trying to be an attentive listener. And that was a text on money. And here you are talking about love. Gabe, I get you're one of the pastoral staff. But you're no love doctor. What does this have to do 
with anything. Uh, is this one of these feel-good, churchy places that's just going to always just walk away uplifted? Here we are. Let's talk about... No. Okay, here's the deal. The reason we started where we started is I think one of the greatest mistakes when it comes to money is we can try to convince the head when in reality it's the heart that's always pulling the strings. Money is not a head issue. I mean, there's good ways of thinking about money, but the heart of what the author of Ecclesiastes is getting at is not to change your mind, but to change your love. You see, every single one of us, we all have an on-again, off-again love affair with money. Every one of us in here. And you might be thinking to yourself, uh, Gabe, this is a little over the top, okay? You're just exaggerating a little bit, but let's be real. Every one of us wants a, you know, a wonderful, warm embrace from a strong bank account, okay? There's often plenty of times where we look longingly at money that we wish we could have, right? There's an element to the wooing of our hearts towards money and, and wanting more, the security it brings, the comfort it brings, the way it can lift us off our feet if we so let it. And like I said, I know some of you may feel like I'm exaggerating, but let me give you just one example. Whenever you talk about money problems, when has it ever meant that you've had too much money? When you have money problems, it's always, always that you don't have enough. <laughs> There's never like, you know, I got this money problem. I got way too much. I don't know what to do with it. Oh, that sounds like a serious problem. No, nobody says that. Don't act like, oh, yeah, that's my story. I do that. No, you don't. When we have money problems, it's that we don't have enough. And that might be in and of itself a clue that your heart is smitten with money. But how big of a deal is this anyway? Well, for questions like these and the questions that we've been walking through, this is why we've turned to the book of Ecclesiastes. And we've entitled this series as we're walking through the themes and the richness of Ecclesiastes, Life Up in Smoke, which doesn't that just sound like a love manual, right? No, of course not. This is no rom-com, okay? But at the same time, Kohelet, so that literally means gatherer, someone who's gathering together these experiences and reflecting upon them and sharing wisdom. He's often called the teacher or the preacher. He's lived life more than anyone in this room. And he's lived the relationship with money all the way to the end. And he's ready to share everything he's learned. He's like, man, I've walked the line with money. I know where it's going to take you. I know where it's going to leave you. And he's ready to give his assessment to anyone who listens. And here's what he has to say. He says, money is the worst lover, and yet we all have a crush, right? It's the worst lover, and yet we all have a crush. Actually, in the pa passage that was just read for us, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, the word love shows up twice, right there in that first verse. Love, the one who loves money. Now, this word love is the same word in Hebrew, that's used for the relationship between spouses, the same word used for the relationship between a parent and a child, and the same word used for the relationship between God and human beings. This is a highly emotive, affective word. It's the kind of emotion that draws out of a sacrifice. It's the kind of word, that, that state of being that draws out from us like this unconditional commitment. There is no stronger force and motive within us as human beings as our love. What you love directs how you live. And Kohelet, he's saying, hey, friends, 
This is going to destroy your life. And yet you, we all have a crush on money. Now, as soon as we start diving into this topic, some of you are really frustrated that you came to church today. And I get it. Me too. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But here's the deal. There are two kinds of folks that usually when we come to this topic of money, okay, and we have two different kinds of syndromes. Uh, the first one is the oblivious lover syndrome, okay? Some of you fit in this. Some of you are like, yes, this is going to be a great sermon for those greedy people, all right? Um, and these are the folks, and, and you may even be in the spot where you're like, you know what, Gabe? I've got a lust issue. I've probably got some pride. And you like naming pride because if you name pride, that makes you look humble. There's this whole thing going on with that. But then when it comes to greed, nobody feels like they have an issue with greed. The person who has an issue with greed is the person who has a little bit more money than you, always. And so you think to yourself, you know what, I've got this little emotional affair with money, but it's not that big of a deal. You know, we just text each other every now and then. It's not, a, you know, seriously, there are way bigger fish to fry in the world than what I've got going on. And everybody else, like all of your friends, this is the obl oblivious, they all see, oh man, this person is like driven by money, except for you. <laughs> And it's leaking out of your bank account. If you don't think you have an issue with money, you might just want to pay attention. You might just be an oblivious lover. And the second is the we're different syndrome. Okay, this is the kind of like, hey, I know money has done some people dirty in the past, but you don't know me. You don't know my story. You don't know how me and money play. All right, this is like that bad boy syndrome. Okay, it's another way of putting it. It's like the person, this guy who keeps treating women poorly, and then you think to yourself, oh, I can change him, and it will be different. No, money, Kohelet's saying, is going to destroy your life. It's the worst lover ever. So don't even have a crush. You could say bad woman syndrome too, bad boy, bad woman, whatever. Both are true sometimes. I've seen both couples in my office at different points. And some of you may be thinking, Gabe, what I do with my money and the privacy of my bank account is my business. And I hear all of that, 100%. But Kohelet has explored this relationship with money more than any one of us. He's gone further than any one of us. He's seen what money will do to you if you give it your heart. And he wants us to grow. He wants us to see, indeed, what is a healthy relationship with money. And actually, what we're going to see here as we walk through our passage that, is that he gives us three reasons why we need to cut off this relationship with money, cut off this um, love of money, this love affair. Because, listen, it's not worth it. It's very attractive. Oh, it draws us in. But you need to start telling money, quit playing games with my heart, right? Well, some of you got it. It's maybe an older reference. I don't even know what fits anymore. But here we go. Uh, three reasons why we need to cut this love affair off with money, all right? Number one, Kohelet says money won't satisfy. It won't satisfy. No matter how much you have, no matter how much you get, if you get all the money you've ever wanted and therefore get everything you think you want, it won't satisfy. And I know because I know the games I play with my own heart. Some of you are sitting there going, like, Gabe, I know this. I know money won't satisfy. I don't think money's going to satisfy. Okay, let's just tease this out. You may indeed, and the reason this sermon is played out this way is because I was preaching it to myself all this last week. So just to be clear, this is a message to me and through me, but it's all for us, not just for you. Just want to make sure that's very clear. Um, 
<laughs> you may not want a specific number or need a specific number in your bank account to be okay, but what you want is just enough in your bank account so that those who know you or those who have said you'll never make it will finally give you respect. That might be it. You may not need like a specific number in your bank account to finally make you feel okay. And you're like, Gabe, it's not about the number, but you want just enough so that you can chase all your dreams without any obstacles. You know, I, every now and then I dabble, dabble in almost every genre of music and uh, country artist, Chris uh, Jensen, he has this great song. I actually really enjoy it. He says, I wish I had a rich uncle that kicked the bucket. And I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it could buy me a boat. <laughs> it could buy me a truck to pull it. <laughs> it could buy me a Yeti 110 ice down with some silver bullets. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, and I know what they say. Money can't buy everything. Well, maybe so. But it could buy me a boat, right? I just love that. That's us. That is us, friends. Oh, no, money. I know money can't, but it, it can give me this thing. Come on, right? You know. Let's not even play this morning. If you got your shirt buttoned up all the way to the top, like I often do, you just might want to say, let my heart out just a little bit. <laughs> Come on. That wasn't the intentionality behind that. I don't know what's going on with me. But here we go. Um, Kohelet, listen to what Kohelet writes by the power of the Spirit within our scriptures. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money most of the time. No, <laughs> he will not. Be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This is putting wind inside of your heart, and it just blows right out. Because here's what we all know. You always want more than you have. No matter how much you get, you always want more than you have. Let me ask you a question this morning. When was the last time you said, I have enough money and believed it? Has there ever been a moment in your life where you felt that? Like genuinely like, you know what? I've got enough. And how long did it last if you have had that feeling? Was it the moment something broke in your home or broke on your car? And you're like, oh, no, I don't have enough. Was it the moment you realized actually what you wanted was just one more upgrade? The clothes you had needed to experience a whole new style refresh because skinny jeans are now out? Man, I tell you, that's a journey. You see, Kohelet, he says it won't be enough and it won't satisfy us because he knows we believe it will. He doesn't say something because he knows we already believe it. He's speaking to us saying, I know you don't want to admit it, but you think that money will satisfy you if you just have enough. But it won't. And sure, you may be thinking, okay, this is going to be really good when, you know, riches come my way, or this is going to be really good for, once again, rich folks. But here's the deal. The term rich is so relative. There, there have been times we've tried to nail it down, and it means a different dollar amount and a different experience based upon your cultural situation. You ask a millionaire when he's in the room with a billionaire, does he feel rich? He's going to say no. Because <laughs> look at, the, I mean, look at how much he's got. I'm no Jeff Bezos, Right? I'm not rich. Jeff Bezos. Now that guy's rich, right? You look at your life and you compare it to someone who experiences global poverty. Your life looks just as much like a pipe dream as yours when you compare it to Jeff Bezos. 
There's a reality that riches, the feeling of being rich, the feeling of having enough, is relative. And yet we think that it'll satisfy us. The reality is, is that satisfaction, if money is where you've given your heart, if it's what you love, it moves as the relationship moves. Always out of reach, a chasing after wind, a vanity of vanities. Now, the second reason we need to cut off this love affair with money is not only does money not satisfy, but money also won't stop the worry. Like, that's another reason why we want money, right? We think to ourselves, you know, if I just have the right cushion, how many times do you use the word cushion or financial margin, right? Your cushion is basically the thing that empowers you that when things go wrong, they don't feel like catastrophes. As long as you have a big enough cushion, a problem isn't a problem. It's just an inconvenience, right? And then that the dream. Some of you may be thinking, you know what, Gabe? I don't need enough money to chase down all my dreams. I don't need enough money to prove my worth to anyone. I just want enough money that protects me from my nightmares, But look at what Kohelet says here in our scriptures. He says, when goods increase, verse 11, they increase who eat them. <laughs> and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So this language of full stomach is literally this language of abundance, and what Kohelet is saying is in the same way when you overeat and you have indigestion and you can't go to sleep, if you are constantly chasing after riches, you get worry added in there and it also contributes to your restlessness. So many people think that if you have just enough money, then finally you'll know peace, finally you'll know rest. And the reality is Kohelet says that doesn't deliver. It's another lie. Money doesn't stop the worry. It's not the thing that's going to give you the calm you really hope it will. Because the reality with money is the more you have, the more stress you have. The more you have, the more stress you have. And the words, so we're going across the musical gamut of the notorious B.I.G., Mo Money, Mo Problems. It's a bit of an old school song, 90s, but here we are. Mo Money, Mo Problems. Let me give you a couple examples. Let's just talk about a car. So our car got totaled about six weeks ago. The Lord provided. It was a really wonderful situation. But the reality is a car, let's just talk about this for a second. A car, you've got to find one. And in this market is insane. <laughs> then you've got to make some payments on that car or figure out how to pay for the car. Then you've got to get insurance for the car. Then after you get insurance for the car, it's not too long after that that you better believe you're filling up that car with gas, right? And the prices of gas right now, whoa. And then on top of that, then you've got to get it, you know, maintained at certain points. You've got to get an oil change. Eventually, your tires are going to run out. And then you do that long enough, and maybe, just maybe, you didn't roll the dice right, and you got a car that was a lemon, and then you've got to replace it in a few years, and you've got to do the whole thing over again. Let's just talk about a house. You felt like you were content with that size loft or then that size house, and then you get a raise. And so you think, oh, I'd love this size house or this size loft. And then, so what happens is you increase your mortgage payment. Then you have to increase your homeowner's insurance or your renter's insurance. And then in the midst of that, it takes so much more time to clean because you have more space. And when things break, there's more materials that are required because it's a bigger space. The more you grow, the more you have, the more it costs to upkeep. The more you have, the more stress it cultivates. And this isn't to demonize money, but it surely can't be your savior. Let me ask you this question. What's the longest stretch 
where you didn't stress about money. Maybe it was after you got your first job. Maybe it was after you got your college debt paid off. Maybe it was after you got married and then you decided, you know, and then God graced you with a kid, so you had a kid, and then you were like, oh man, diapers. Uh, (laughs) Then finally you got all your kids through college, which is in and of itself a feat or helped in some way, shape, or form, and then they left the house. But then now you're thinking, okay, I've got retirement. You know, some people say half a mil, some people say a mil, some people say two mil. Do I have enough? Will I have enough? Every stage of life, the more you court money and you give it your heart, that stress evolves. It matures with you. It doesn't dissipate. You might be thinking, well, I don't stress about my kids. Anymore. Yeah, they're out of the house. And they've got their own families. But now you're worried about something else. Money's favorite handmaiden is worry. And when you're courting it, it comes with it. But there's one more reason why you need to cut off this love affair with money. And it's this. Money won't stay. It won't satisfy, it won't stop the worry, and it won't stay. I mean, Kohelet, he kind of highlights some of these ways, but it's easy to lose, right? If you hold money just in your hand, inflation will make it worth less tomorrow than it is today. It can get stolen, and you can worry about someone stealing it. You can put it in a bad investment, and it's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. And then, of course, and this is where Kohelet goes... This great teacher says, then there's death. No matter how much you amass, there's a door you will walk through where money will say, I can't go any further. I have to stay here. You're going on. As you enter into death and you enter into your eternal trajectory, money cannot go with you. There's a moment where even money says, I can't go any further. And and we try. There's actually this whole website, website called Alcor, not Al Gore, Alcor, okay, A-L-C-O-R dot com. And if you go check it out, um, you can experience cryonics. This is where they freeze your body right after you die. Now, they've never been proven that they can unfreeze your body, okay? So this is the fascinating deal. But they freeze your body in the hopes that, you know, a couple hundred years from now, They can dethaw you, and they'll have the science, one, to actually dethaw you, and then actually have the science to elongate your life, you know, absurd amounts of years, okay? So for the low, low cost of $200,000, which they have whole strategies in getting the right life insurance and all these types of things to make sure you can pay for it, you can undergo whole body cryopreservation, right? And they always say, you know, but this is, this, this part is like, well, did you look at the control case? You know, if you're doing an experiment, these are the people who aren't being frozen. They're like, they're not doing so great. Well, okay. <laughs> Golly. I guess I could throw my money at the wind and then it'll fly somewhere, you know? Like, but this is, we try so hard to fight death. To think that surely we could put enough money that we could even cheat death. We try all of these different pathways and we think science will be our savior. Let me ask you, how long can this love affair with money really last? I mean, the more you have, the more you have to lose. And eventually death will end whatever you've invested in. Money is, in many ways, if that's what you've given your heart to, it's one of the worst investments this side of heaven. And yet still, what do we do? We, we chase after it. 
as if it's our long-lost love. We hoard it in terror, afraid that someone might take it and misuse it. We give our hearts, our souls, our minds. And to be clear, there is wisdom to navigating money, but there's a difference between wisdom and navigating money and taking care of responsibilities and giving your life to it. And so I want to make this personal. I just want to ask this question of us today in the midst of this. What need are you hoping money will meet for you? Alongside of paying bills, right? And we need to work. Scriptures talk about that too. Those who do not work, do not eat. There's this element of like working and then being able to pay and care for others. Yes, yes, yes. There's a healthy kind of dynamic to that. But when we look to money to meeting our deepest needs, it's one of the windows into our soul that it's actually become our first love. So maybe for you, it is an identity deal. You're looking for money to finally, de- finally declare you're worth it. Maybe you're looking for money to provide security, to finally make you feel safe. Maybe you're looking for money to give you a legacy. I'm going to change my family dynamic, and I'm going to tell a different story, and money's going to help me do that. It's going to make sure that happens. So where do we go when we're trying to get money to meet needs that it was never intended to meet? Well, let's look at where Kohelet goes here in the remainder of our passage. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. He says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You know, money is the worst lover. And instead of crushing on money, We ought to give our hearts to a better love. Give our hearts to a better love. And you know where that starts? It starts with waking up to who's really behind the good in your life. That's where it starts. You're kind of in like, I don't know if you, so I love rom-coms, if that hasn't become clear, okay? Um, But one of the things I love is like those rom-coms where you, you have this guy or this woman who's chasing after someone of the opposite sex, right? And they're just like all in, but they have this friend who's helping him out like the whole time. Like this guy's like chasing after this woman and she just wants nothing to do with him. And then there's this friend who happens to also be a woman. She's trying her best because she just wants her friend to be happy. And then suddenly he goes, oh, wait a second. Like you're an exceptional human being who loves me for me. And then suddenly they fall in love. I love that stuff, okay? (laughs) I mean, that's what we've done. We've gone after the gift and the giver's like, I just want your best. God's like, I, I want you to actually know joy. And we're like, ooh, money, you know, like, and he's like, no, no, I'm here. I love you for you. I sent my son to die for you. And then we go chasing after the gift. And Kohelet, he, he comes to this understanding of his mistake that he's been chasing the gift and how it doesn't satisfy. And then he finally is reoriented towards the giver. And we can do this. I mean, we can come together on a Sunday and we're singing songs like Build My Life like we sang earlier, but instead we can say, money, the name above every other name, right? Money, the only one who could ever save, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. We may not ever utter it out loud, but our lives are screaming it. Our bank accounts are screaming it. Our credit card statements are screaming it. 
So what do we do when we wake up to who's really behind the good in our life? We have to objectify money. The word objectify is, you know, kind of demonized in our culture and for good reason. <laughs> the, to objectify something is to treat it like an object. In reality, we come to money and we treat it like a person who's worthy of our love, worthy of our sacrifice, worthy of our unconditional commitment. And whenever you objectify money, that means your heart is directed towards a better love. But hear me, if you personify money and you make it your love, you will ultimately objectify others. You will treat others as objects on the, the stepping stones to finally get more money. You will treat even God. You will objectify God in order to get more money. Your true beloved. God, I, here, listen, I'll give you my heart if you give me you're treating him as an object to get what you really want whenever we start doing these bargains. Instead, objectify money. Treat it like an object. Treat it like the gift that it is rather than the very center of our hearts and minds. Because listen, until we objectify money, we'll never know gratefulness. We never will. If, if God is the one who has your heart and he's calling you beloved, then you can be satisfied with how much he gives you for the day. This is the secret to contentment, friends, where the Apostle Paul says, I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have little to nothing, but I'm okay because I've got my beloved and it isn't money. It isn't comfort. It isn't all the things that money wants to provide because I've got a God who's looking over me and he's the one who has me. There's a categorical difference that finally unlocks. You can't just say, I'm going to be grateful. I'm going to be grateful. You've got to give your heart to God. And he will make you grateful with what he's entrusted to you. I mean, psychologists agree across all stripes that gratitude is central to a good life. But if you just chase the good life or you just chase gratitude, you'll never find it. You have to chase and surrender to the one true God who is the giver of all good gifts. And that leads us to the second component, how you give your heart to a better love, is let God occupy all your thoughts around money, all of them. Now, this is not an avoidance of talking about money, you know, like somehow talking about money is evil. Some folks really hate budgets. I get it. I love budgets. Ugh, I know. Uh, but I love budgets. That doesn't mean you avoid talking about money, nor does it mean you have this anxiety around money. Like, do I have too much? Do I have too little? And you're always worried about, like, what's the ideal number? Pastor Tom Nelson, one of our senior pastors, I think brilliantly captures the biblical framework for greed when he says greed is not about how much money you have. It's about what and how much money has you. What has it? You can have very little money, and yet it can have all of your heart's devotion. You can have a whole lot of money, and actually you're pouring out with generosity. It's not about lining on for the perfect number so that you can now compare who's better and who's worse. It's a heart posture. It's a framework which God infuses in your framework towards money. Such that when we come together, and once again, these songs we sing are so important. That's why I'm so grateful for Aaliyah and Sean and the theology that they're bringing to us as they're guiding us through this music. I mean, that shapes us almost more than anything. Where we go and we sing, I surrender most, Right? No, it's all. Most to him, my precious Savior. What kind of precious Savior? Precious enough for most. 
I surrender most. No, it's all. There's this all-inclusive nature to that when we come to him. That is radically reorienting the quote-unquote love affair we often have with money. And here's the secret. When you begin to let God occupy all your thoughts around money, this is the key element, is you understand and have a deep awareness that he's with you. That is the, not only is he the one who has given you everything that's good in your life, but he's with you even through the difficult times. One of the greatest difficulties for us and one of our greatest issues is that we genuinely do not believe that if we don't have enough money tomorrow, God won't be there with us in it. I'm going to say that again. If one of the biggest issues when it comes to money, the reason we keep going to money because we can touch it, we can feel it, it looks and has a specific number in our bank account, is if we feel like tomorrow we might not have enough, we deeply believe down in the depths of our heart that if we don't have enough tomorrow, then God won't be there when we don't have enough. And one of our greatest fears is that we'll be alone in our problems. And all of this is a pipe dream. One of the easiest things for us to show or live out in atheism as if God does not exist is how we navigate our money. Do we really trust that God will show up? Do we believe that he'll have us when the stock market crashes? Do we believe that he'll have us when you get the surprise bill? Do you believe that he'll have you when you get into a car accident and it surprises you by the dynamics to kind of navigate getting a new car? Do do you really believe that? That's... What's offered here when we recognize that he is indeed with us and has us. That's why the Kohelet says in verse 20 that he occupies what? He occupies our hearts with joy. Joy, friends, is a relational category. Always. Whenever joy shows up, it's not something you experience by yourself because of the circumstances you have. It's experienced because of who is with you no matter what circumstances come. I'm going to say that again because that's actually really, when it comes to contempt. Joy is not an experience you have on your own because your circumstances are right. It's an experience you have in relationship with someone because someone's with you no matter what circumstances come. And Kohelet's had this understanding that, okay, it's not about my circumstances and amount of money I have that's going to finally make me have joy. It's that God, the gift giver, is with me in it no matter what. And that becomes the catalyst for deep joy in his life. And then it also becomes the key to unlocking generosity. Not only does it cultivate gratefulness, but it also becomes the key to unlocking generosity. If you want to know... Here's a good test. Do you want to know whether God has your heart or not? He'll have your wallet or your clutch, you know, or your purse or your phone, whatever you use, Apple Pay, I don't know. Brought to you by, no, just kidding. (laughs) If you want to know whether God has your heart, does he have your wallet? I mean, just just go to the gospel account of Luke and look at Zacchaeus. You earlier, just look at the flow. The rich young ruler, Jesus says, man, this guy's got everything going for him. But it's clear, not that he has wealth, but that his wealth has him. And he won't forsake his first love of his wealth to now follow Jesus. Then you've got this blind beggar that comes after and he has nothing. And he finds utter joy in following Jesus. And then you get to Zacchaeus, who does have extraordinary wealth that he took from others as a tax collector. And then when Jesus comes to his house and by his very presence says, you don't have to prove yourself to me. I love you no matter what you've done. And you are seen as beloved 
beloved in my eyes. And then on his own accord says, I'm going to pay back everything that I've stolen to everybody, like multiplied. Then Jesus says salvation has come to this house. The order is extraordinarily important. It's not just a once in the future kind of experience of salvation. He's breaking us free from this idolatry and this broken love of money today. And the moment he gets a hold of our wallet, it's a window that he's indeed got our heart. That's not a legalism, but it is a window for your own self-reflection. And one of the greatest <laughs> signs that he has your wallet is that you're generous. So you see the follow here? If he's got your heart, he'll have your wallet. And if he's got your wallet, you'll be generous. You'll be opening it up because God continues to open it up to you. You become like your father in heaven. But here's the thing about generosity. It's not just a sign, it's also a test. Counselors call these corrective experiences, okay? <clears throat> this is what's so fascinating about this is generosity is not only a sign that you are experiencing like delight in who God is, but the more you're generous, the more you trust him. Because if you say, you know what? There's this situation and I'm gonna give towards this situation and I know this is gonna put me potentially in a more tricky spot or at least it's not gonna make my savings account as robust as I really wish it would be, but instead I'm gonna have my eye on the other right now in this particular case, and then God still has you tomorrow. You say, I trusted you here, and you carried me. That builds trust. That's how we do that in relationships. Why would we not expect the same to happen in our relationship with God? It also cultivates trust. And listen, the less you're generous, the less you're gonna trust that God will be there. Because you're not building those experiences that we need as human beings to cultivate a deep foundation of trust. So try it. Why don't you just try it over these next couple of months? When you're with a coworker, why don't you just buy their lunch? And maybe they don't even have to know. Maybe when you go to the ballot box, whatever this means for you, instead of just thinking about your financial outcome, think about what's good for the community and the generosity that can come through that. Maybe, just maybe, it has to do with being generous to your church. I have a deep conviction that God calls God's people to give a tithe, 10%. That's what that word means, back to their church community that God can continue to carry out his purposes through the church. And some of you are like, ha, 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 that's what this whole sermon's about. <laughs> nice try. You thought you could just skim over that? And I want to say, good job. No, I'm serious. Catch that moment. That's not what I'm seeking to do, but you need to catch it. And I want you to use the same analytical tool to every other device that's calling out for your money. Oh, you need this bigger house. Why? Ask what it's trying to get from you. Oh, I need these new jeans. Why? What sort of promises is it making to you? Oh, I need to get this new car. Why? Don't just assume that's better for you. Ask the same level skepticism to those particular sorts of desires that are promising something to you. Do that. Hallelujah. Would we actually do that other places that are calling everything from you and making these empty promises? And then when you come to church, go, I think they might want something for me rather than just from me. Yeah, that's our hope. But use that assessment tool on everything, not just on the place that comes to declare, hey, we want God's good for you. No, you don't. Use it everywhere. Okay. <clears throat> and here's why. All of this and this is where Kohelet's going. God isn't going anywhere. The reason <laughs> he's worthy of the trust, the reason why I'm inviting you to test these things is because he's not going anywhere. Money can't go with you, but God's going to go all the way with you. 
And I can't just stay in Ecclesiastes for that. I got to go to the gospel. I got to see a God who looked at his creation, who turned its back on him. And instead of turning his back on it, he actually crossed the divide rather than being left on the outside of the door like money will be. And instead, he crossed into our world, became human because of his love for us, went to the cross and paid our debt because of our sin, and then rose again. Why? That he might give us life. That's who God is. Such that the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Here we go. It's up on the screen. The verse for us is, there we go, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the kind of God who says, trust me. That's the one who's saying, lean into me. And if you give your heart to that one, if you say, you are my love, if you seek first his kingdom, if you lean deeply into all that he has done for you, if you receive him and see him as the source of everything good in your life, you'll finally know love as it was designed to be. Unlike money that will constantly keep you running, constantly keep you restless, make all these promises, leave all these little carrots until finally you find yourself off a cliff by yourself and money waving at the top. Because it can't go where you go. You see, God will satisfy. He will and has the capacity to stop the worry. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. giving him your heart will finally know what it means not just to know love but to be loved and for him to look at you and say my beloved and then no matter what you have and no matter where you've been you can know contentment and even when you feel like you've got nothing find you have something to give to someone else let's pray and here's what we're going to do actually before you close your eyes we're going to do something some of you are like okay Gabe uh No, here's the deal. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab your wallet, your clutch, your purse, your phone. I want you to put it out in front of you, okay? Don't be worried. I'm not going to have you put on the stage. We're not going to light anything on fire today, okay? (laughs) I don't know about your church background, but I had a little bit of experience there, okay? Um, Growing up, like, oh, there's all my CDs. Gone. Um, (laughs) Sorry. I don't know. That's, I don't know. Anyway. That's not what's happening. This is not for us. This is for you. You need to see what's calling out to your heart. You need to look at it and see that it's an object. You need to see that you had to pull it out. That it couldn't walk out and stand on your leg and say, I'm going to give you everything. No, you had to do it. And it's calling everything from you. Everything. It keeps you up at night. It wakes you up early in the morning. It it gets you working way too late that you're now avoiding other relationships and responsibility. All these things right there. Look at it. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you just to pray silently a word of surrender and say, I surrender all, even this, to you, God. Use it for my good, but may it not have my heart. So I just want to invite us all to do that, okay, right now? Can we do that? Is that right? So let's pray together. Let's close our eyes, open that up. I'm just going to give you just a moment of silence.
God, you have been generous to us. In the words of a friend of mine, if you didn't do another thing for us, you've already done more than enough. Thank you for what you've accomplished. Thank you for who you are, that you show up towards us in kindness. That then leads us to repentance, that you're the kind of God always pursuing our good and seeking to, yes, even give us good gifts. Forgive us for the ways that we make those good gifts the ultimate place of our allegiance in our heart, and may they have their rightful place. And so may we know the fruits of contentment and the fruit of gratitude and the fruit of generosity. God, help us. Help us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.